that research found that there's a particular um, involvement of mercury in the pathology of Alzheimer's disease. And we have problems with that. So if we have uh, a fatty acid problem, uh, we think that eating McDonald's french fries are going to solve it because there's fat in it. And that's the real key to redox. It's the gaining and loss of electrons. It's, it's, most, it's the most rapid aging part of our brain of recognizing that you live in an artificial world and that you really don't want to live in an artificial world. You are listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more on building optimal mental and physical performance into your life, visit naturalstacks.com. Brian Muncy is probably the smartest guy I know. Trust me, Muncy is the nutrition guy. Ryan Muncy's out there trying to make the world better for all of us. The Optimal Performance Podcast is bold, edgy, creative, entertaining, and epic. Brian Muncy is my go-to guy. Brian Muncy is he's the first guy I call. He's making people's lives better. Brian Muncy's an innovator. All right, happy Thursday, all you optimal performers. Welcome to another episode of the OPP. Really cool episode for you today. We are talking with Stephen Folks, who is a legend in the biohacking community. Uh, Stephen is an organic chemist, author, public speaker. Uh, he's the man behind Project Wellbeing. Um, you know, Steve has been biohacking longer than biohacking was actually a word. So we're really excited to do this. Steve, thanks for hanging out with us. You're welcome. It's good to be here. Uh, so before we get started, a couple of housekeeping notes for you guys listening. As always, go to naturalstacks.com. You'll be able to see the blog post along with the video version of this and all of the links and resources that we will talk about today. I can assure you there will be plenty of those. Um, please go to iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. We will read some of these reviews on the air. I realize and admit that I've been a little slack about that, so I'm going to give you two of them right now. If we read your review on the air, we will hook you up with free products. So uh, if you hear your review, let us know and we'll hook you up. So here's one from Lisa V. McDonald, says amazing, five stars. In my pursuit of a healthy diet and lifestyle, I'm overwhelmed with so much information, or should I say misinformation. I trust Ryan Muncy in his pursuit of optimal performance for himself, myself, and the rest of us relying on his integrity. Uh, thank you, Ryan. So that's awesome. Lisa, thank you so much for that. One more from K Love to Dance to. This is one of the best podcasts on breakthroughs in health and nutrition out there. Being a self-declared biohacker and being super trendy in my research on diet and health, I'm always eager to listen to whatever topic Ryan has on the show. I've learned several helpful tips from all of the episodes. Thank you for creating this excellent, informative, educational podcast, Ryan. So thank you guys for, for those reviews. Um, let us know, uh, you know what you guys think. Like I said, if we read yours on the air, we will let you, uh, we'll hook you up with free product. And the final call for you guys is to share this podcast, this episode, and the OPP in general with the people in your life that you know will benefit from what we're doing, what we're talking about. I'm sure as you listen to this episode, you will hear things and, and people will pop into your mind and you'll say, I wish so-and-so heard this or knew this. Share it with them. Uh, let them know. that That's how we get the message out there. That's how we help more people. So um, all that said, Steve, ready to help thousands of people get better today? By all means. 
Let's do this. So uh, I want to jump right in with Alzheimer's reversal and prevention. This is uh, a topic where you have so much knowledge. So uh, let's just, I'm going to give you the mic. Ah, okay. Well, it's a topic near and dear to my heart. My grandfather had secondary complications to his emphysema and smoking and living in the LA basin and being a dentist and um, died with Alzheimer's disease. And it's not that Alzheimer's disease necessarily kills people directly, but the, you know, people develop it as their health fails. And it turns out that the seminal research that gave me the final piece of the puzzle that was the the core central piece to which all the other research I've been studying for decades fit together into a picture was done by dental scientists, not by Alzheimer's researchers. And um, that research found that there is a particular um, involvement of mercury in the pathology of Alzheimer's disease. And let me start off by saying that it's not that Alzheimer's, that mercury causes it because there are people with fairly high mercury burdens who don't have Alzheimer's disease and people with low mercury burdens who do have Alzheimer's disease. It's really about the balance between mercury and mercury detoxification, which is dependent that detoxification is dependent upon the energy systems of the body. So as our bodies brown out with age, as we lose a third of a percent of our metabolism um, with each passing year, as we have trauma events in our lives um, from automobile accidents to elective surgeries and anesthesia, um, once our metabolism drops below a certain level to maintain our glutathione, the mercury all of a sudden goes from a bound state to an unbound state and poisons a class of enzymes. Um, so if you look at Alzheimer's disease and you know that it's got you know 10 enzymes that are strongly inhibited, almost to the point of dysfunction, um, every one of those enzymes is a sulfhydro-based enzyme that looks like glutathione and binds mercury just like glutathione. And so this is the smoking gun for Alzheimer's disease that mainstream Alzheimer's researchers have missed because they're focused on higher level systems and they don't look at the the most basic biochemistry aspects which would be you know pH reactions and redox reactions and the function of glutathione is a core antioxidant defense that's based on the redox defense of the body Um, by redox I mean oxidation reduction only reversed um, we say redox instead of oxred just because it's easier to say, but it's like it's like the water in the lake. It's like the air that we breathe. It's so prevalent and so universal that we tend not to give it any respect. All right. So there, there's a lot there, and, and I want to kind of peel back some of those layers and, and also zoom out and, and kind of put it in perspective for people too. So, so first of all, it, it sounds like you're saying that if we are able to maintain glutathione – uh, levels through the aging process, that's a crucial step in preventing Alzheimer's. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And that if one can restore glutathione cycling, uh, the conversion of oxidized glutathione into reduced glutathione, that one will reverse Alzheimer's disease. Beautiful. So with all that said, then the next question becomes, you know, how do we do that? What are, what are some things that 
uh, either environmental or lifestyle that would negatively impact glutathione levels and also some ways that we could elevate or, or you know, regain those levels of glutathione? Well, a lot of the things that have already been identified as protective elements, like, for example, um, having um, exercise as part of your lifestyle. Exercise raises your metabolic rate. It produces aerobic fitness in your body. Um, beta oxidation and ketosis. Um, burning fat as a, as a core element, one's competency in burning fat, um, as a bioenergetic facet of our health. Um, do we regularly um, restrict our carbs enough to slide into ketosis in a very graceful way so that we don't go through like a rut in the road mm -hmm. where we bottom out for a period of time before we're actually in beta oxidation mode or in ketosis mode. Um, having low levels of xenoestrogens, which we might get from drinking bottled water or uh, eating food that has, you know, um, preservatives in it or has um, pesticides in it. Um, reducing our total toxic load from mycotoxins and endotoxins, um, heavy metals. Um, it just goes on and on and on. And then there's the psychological side of things because um, aging is influencing our metabolism. Things like our spiritual development, our happiness, our satisfaction with life, our gratitude, our looking forward to waking up in the morning. These are all massively involved with the maintaining of our metabolic rate. Okay. Um, and then circling back one more time to that original statement, for, for people who may not have science degrees, can you explain redox reactions? Yes. Um, the body has um, various kinds of balance. It's, a, it's like, a, you know, it's a, it's a basic concept. You think about being in balance with nature, being in balance with yourself, being balanced with your family and your coworkers and um, other people driving down the freeway with you. <laughs> um, and um, when you take it down to the level of the cell and the level of the organelles within the cell, which at one point were in an external environment and are now part of an internal environment, the body defends that environment, and when we have to borrow energy from outside of ourselves through our food, through our breathing air, through our drinking of water to hydrate that comp those compartments, to have oxygen coming in and carbon dioxide leaving, and any poisons that come in that they get detoxified, and the all of these systems that work depend upon this low level of chemical balance. And pH is a common one that people think about because um, it's kind of a linear continuum where we live in the middle. Mm -hmm. So we live at roughly pH 7, and if it's pH 5, you're, drink, you're talking about the, the tartness of orange juice. And if it's pH um, 3, you're talking about you know, lemon juice, you know, it puckers up your mouth. We have experiences of that. Or if you're if you're putting something like milk of magnesia in your mouth and you know more more alkaline, you get this you know unique taste in your mouth. So we we our our taste buds defend our pH by giving us food cravings, for example. Mm -hmm. So if you take 
um, a whole bunch of cows out in the field, and those cows are copper deficient. If you put salt licks out across the field, only one of which has copper in it, eventually all those cows are going to be licking on that one salt lick because their brains can connect their taste buds to their nutritional needs. In our human brains, we have all this stuff on the top of things where our primitive taste bud centers and all are kind of subverted by all of this higher cognitive function. Mm -hmm. And we have problems with that. So if we have uh, a fatty acid problem, uh, we think that eating McDonald's french fries are going to solve it because there's fat in it. And so we can identify that there's fat, but not really the right kind of fat. Uh, with redox potential, um, we don't live in the center. When life evolved and our cells evolved and our, and our original cells incorporated mitochondria and became, you know, um, eukaryotic and capable of multicellular forms, in that environment, uh, we lived in a very reduced state where there wasn't any oxygen. There was lots and lots and lots of electrons. And that's the real key to redox. It's the gaining and loss of electrons. It's like an ocean of electrons. And we live in this time in an environment that's depleted of electrons. And so our bodies spend massive amounts of their function pulling in the electrons from food and and cultivating the safety of oxygen so it doesn't destroy our electrons so that we then have this environment inside of ourselves that was there when we were single cell and multi-cell life forms. And, and that redox environment takes a lot of energy to defend and massive amounts. I mean, you know, 20% of our total energy goes to um, supporting the brain and defending the brain against the instabilities of our world around us. So this is completely outside of the list of topics that, that we have to go over today. But you know, since you're since you're talking about you know this this balance and and these electrons, I can't help but but want to ask you the question. You know, is that the science behind um, all of the health benefits? from things that produce negative ions, whether it's a Himalayan yes. salt lamp or waterfalls or ocean waves, anything that produces these negative uh, ions, it's, you know, in science, it, that's an electron. So that helps us balance that redox potential. And that's why those are considered healing things. That's very true. Um, uh, but it's not necessarily just about the simple providing of electrons to the body, the body also has defensive reactions against things that try to steal those electrons. Mm -hmm. So when you exercise, you get, you generate all these free radicals and the body goes, whoa, this is too many free radicals. And it increases its antioxidant defense. It increases its energy systems devoted to defending against the stress of the exercise. So, I mean, you're, you're eliciting that hermetic response. Yes. Okay. Exactly. And so that's, you know, in a sense, because we as a species depend upon our brain for our survival in ways that are unprecedented, we have the highest amount of, of our biological energy devoted to supporting our brain in terms of energy. It's like 20% of our total body power goes to just idling the brain, mm -hmm. keeping the brain idling. So the difference between 19% and 21% is night and day difference from our brain's perspective, right. from our subjective, you know, feeling and thinking and, and uh, uh, you know, just feeling alive, that difference really matters. 
Well, speaking of the brain, you've said that it can be an early warning sign for, for body disease. Yes. Which body diseases and, and what signs should we be looking for? Well, certain things like insulin resistance are paradoxically underrepresented by the brain because the brain uses the GLUT1 receptors, which are insensitive to, to insulin uh, more, way more, dramatically more than the GLUT4 receptors, which the body uses and are responsive uh, to insulin. But, you know, anything that affects your circulation, you know, the, the blood flow to your brain. Um, so that could be a coagulopathy, which is the blood thickening up and not flowing so gracefully. It could be a vasospasm where the diameter of blood vessels shrinks because of a, of a muscle cramp in the smooth muscles that surround the, the, the vessel. Um, it could be um, a pH imbalance that interferes with the way hemoglobin um, carries oxygen into the deep tissues and then hinges and then carries carbon dioxide back out to the lungs. Any one of those kinds of um, energy delivery systems, when they get compromised, can cause massive problems with the brain. Okay. Um, and, and I guess uh, we'll, we'll talk about Parkinson's in, in just a second, but you know, there, there have been a lot of studies linking insulin resistance recently to Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's, which... Uh, I don't think that would surprise folks who listen to our show or, or, or you and I, but I, I think in, in academia that's you know somewhat of a surprise or, or, or being viewed that way. Um, can, can you talk a little Type bit about three that? diabetes? Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that for us? Well, you know the the problem with insulin resistance is that it causes a failure of the body side of the of the blood brain barrier. So you know you've got issues with the brain and issues with the body. Well, the brain depends upon the body. Mm -hmm. So if you have vascular complications, you have inflammation in your vascular system, your brain is going to be affected. It may not be affected right away, but um, the degree to which you might, let's say, have um, immature collagen in the lining of your blood vessels, and then your body attacks that immature collagen to thinking that it's aged collagen to replace it, and because your collagen mechanism has failed, your, your, the immature collagen is replaced with more immature collagen, and so the cycle just repeats. So now you've got an inflammatory loop, which is um, triggered by the fact that a healing mechanism is, has been sabotaged. Mm -hmm. Well, that healing mechanism can be sabotaged because you don't have enough lysine, glycine, or uh, proline in your diet, it can be sabotaged in the vast majority of, of humans because it requires vitamin C to do a maturation step on the collagen. Um, uh, or, um, and humans don't make vitamin C. And when, when glutathione suffers, vitamin C necessarily suffers as well because they're redox coupled to each other. Uh, it could be a copper deficiency because you've got inflammation, your body is now, um, your, your liver is in defensive mode, it's trying to keep your copper, iron, and zinc down to minimum levels because those are growth factors for microbes and it can't distinguish between um, in infectious inflammation and non-infectious inflammation. It doesn't know the difference. And so you live as if you're chronically infected all the time because you've got immature collagen in your system. And that affects your brain. So, you know, diabetes has uh, is is a is a really serious 
browning out of the body because people with diabetes have overeaten carbohydrates for decades and you know at least a decade if not two or four decades mm -hmm. and their 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 cells are only able to burn sugar efficiently to generate energy they don't burn fat gracefully yet they haven't learned that trick yet and practiced it yet and tuned up their fat burning systems and because they're burning carbs and they're insulin resistant their carb energy production is low and their fat system which is capable could be capable isn't being used and therefore their entire body is starting to fail and the brain eventually gets caught up in that drama so because we've talked about becoming fat adapted and burning fat on previous episodes, I, I won't ask you about that. That's, but yeah. but for people listening, if you haven't heard that, uh, two episodes definitely to go back and check out. One with, with Mark Sisson and the other was a recent episode on ketones with uh, Dominic Diagostino and Mike T. Nelson. So both of those are tremendous resources for you to learn how to make that metabolic switch that, that Steve just mentioned. Um, you know, Steve, you yeah, said, Mark's a very smart guy. He really is, really is. Um, and he practices what he preaches. I hope I look like that when I'm 62. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we love Mark. Mark's a great guy. And um, you've said browning out twice. Um, when you say that, I, I can't help but think of like cutting an apple, leaving it on the counter, and, and seeing that uh, non-enzymatic browning process. Is that what you're referring to? Actually, I'm not. I'm referring to, you know, the power in your household, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it, for some people who live in an electrically stable environment, their house doesn't brown out. But, you know, if you're in a house and you're in a big city and something goes wrong with the grid um, and your voltage drops from 110 volts in the U.S. to, let's say, 90 volts, you see a dimming of your lights. Mm -hmm. That's what I call browning out. Okay. And if it drops to 90 volts... You still have light. You just see a little bit of a dimming. If it drops to 70 volts, you see a huge amount of dimming. But the reason that this is important is because as the voltage drops in the human body, the performance of your body is impaired more than the voltage drop. In other right. words, if you have a table saw that's one horsepower, if you lose 10% of your voltage, you lose 30% of the power in your table saw. Mm -hmm. and, and all the appliances in your kitchen, in your household are geared for running at a particular kind of voltage. And when you sacrifice that voltage, everything starts to go wrong. And so in human beings, as we brown out, our body starts rationing energy. It's a natural adaptive mechanism. And we can have reverse T3 being produced to sabotage the thyroid systems. We can have estrogenification to switch from progesterone and testosterone, which are pro-energy influences to estrogens, which are um, off switches for our energy. Um, and our bodies are um, trying to preserve things like lean body mass and our body fat percentage because our body fat percentage is our backup energy for handling long-term starvation. Mm -hmm. You know, starvation has been a facet of human survival for all of our existence. And the fact that we don't have that anymore in the United States and in developed countries mm -hmm. means that that capability of our body to burn fat and to regulate our systems is malfunctioning. You know, I've said that so many times when I'm interviewed on, on other podcasts and, and, you know, the, the availability that we have for food today 
is so much in contrast with what it has always been throughout human evolution. I mean, if you look, I don't care where you live, you know, unless you're on top of a mountain in, in you know, the Rockies, you're probably not more than five or 10 minutes away from multiple places where you can acquire food without much physical effort. And that's never been the case in human history. So, um, you know, I actually had this as, uh, you know, a topic for, for later on, but, but since we're on it, I mean, let's, let's talk about this. Um, well, it's actually not human history. It's kind of prehistory. Right. It's never been the case in prehistory. But actually, in my opinion, civilization mm-hmm. was the point at which humans figured out ways of cooperating on a large enough scale to be able to backstore food in huge quantities, mm-hmm. especially carbohydrate foods, to enable things like language and libraries and government and and trade systems and things like that. Um, and that's when we start to see this transition from a intermittent food supply to a regular food supply and all the diseases of civilization that are the consequence of that. Well, but I, I would say, I mean, even if, if you look at, I pick a random year, like 1500, you know, where you have some civilization and you have some, some stored supply of food. I mean, there's no way that if you, I mean, they didn't have electricity. So, so how hard was it really, like what was really involved with producing meals for that day? Um, there was no way that a human could ingest in such a short period of time and with regularity that, that we've been able to do for the last hundred years or 75 years. It was, you're right. It was certainly that's true of the poor and the peons and the serfs and, you know, uh, but in terms of the royalty, no, they were always um, feasting instead of feasting and famining. Right. They're feasting all the time. And that's why you see a lot of bizarre, you know, issues that take place with, with civilizations when that feasting side of things goes out of control. So, you know, the lead in the wine of the Romans and the, um, the, the genetic diseases of inbreeding with, with, with royalty and things like that are um, examples of a small segment of the society, you know, losing that connection to, you know, the realities of survival in a wild world. And, you know, if you were, um, you were growing food and you were expected to donate 50% of your food to your liege lord and they came in and took 60%, um, you would be likely to go without food for a long period of time. So it, it sounds like you're a proponent of intermittent fasting? Absolutely. Okay. And I'm also a proponent of intermittent a lot of things. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, I, my, my supplements now, I do rotate and I do go through um, intermittent, you know, pulsing of them mm-hmm. um, as a general strategy. You know, there's a lot of people in the, in the paleo and ancestral communities who take the position that certain foods, you know, were not natural. And I don't know that I agree with that. I mean, what I've noticed is that when humans are hungry enough, we'll kind of eat anything. And the fact that Native Americans figured out how to eat acorns here in California safely shows how dedicated we are and how much intelligence and purpose we can focus on the issue of scavenging food anywhere we can find it. So I'm not convinced at all that humans never ate wheat. But I would say that if we did eat wheat, um, 
we only ate it for weeks or a couple of months. And for the rest of the year, we didn't eat wheat. Mm -hmm. And therefore, any inflammation engendered by the wheat or the corn or the oats or whatever it was, um, was intermittent. And we had our immune system had a period of time to relax mm -hmm. from that in heightened inflammation to then restore health and balance. And nowadays, we don't do that at all. We, we eat all the time. We eat oats all the time, you know, and that tires out our immune system and exposes us to chronic inflammation, which is one of the triggers for this browning out process that I'm talking about. It's interesting, as you're going through that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm reading a book right now called Anti-Fragile. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. It was recommended to us by a previous podcast guest, and, and I absolutely love the book. I recommend it highly to uh, anybody listening that, that hasn't read it. But you know, there, there's uh, some, some discussion in that book about the need for, for recovery from, you know, you're, you're exposed to these stressors, you have this period of recovery, and then, you know, that that's exactly what you're saying. If we get, you know, the, the, the intermittent everything I love, and, and I, <laughs> I, I relate that to a lot of what's in the book, Anti-Fragile. I mean, if you look at Native Americans or, or people who, uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, being anti-fragile is how we evolved and, and survived and, you know, carried out this species. You know, it wasn't enough to just resist and have a neutral reaction to chaos or whatever. So um, it, it's it's interesting to hear multiple people talking about the same kind of concept. And, and I like that, that intermittent exposure and, and recovery um, as, as a key point there. So so I want to hear your, your thoughts on, you know, how do you set up intermittent fasting? I, I love it. I practice it. Uh, I know a lot of our listeners do. Um, it, it, it just works for me. It doesn't mean it works for everybody. But I'm curious to hear how you set it up. Well, um, I don't try to overmanage it. That's the first thing. And I do it on um, daily levels. I do it on weekly levels. I do it on monthly levels. I do it based on my schedule and my projects. How much work do I have to do as opposed to interfere, which would interfere with my focus on the issue of, of conducting a fast, a, a guided fast. Um, you can't really go traveling throughout the world and do a fast easily. Right. Um, it's it's it, especially if you're doing a partial fast where you're trying to cut out only protein or cut out only carbs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, carbs is easier, but figuring out how to eat and not, you know, consume protein is is um, requires deliberation. It does. Um, so the 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 whole aspect of how our um, how we structure that. Um, fragile um, resistance, that, that strengthening. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people have this, uh, you know, especially males have this idea that, um, you know, anything good, more is better, you know, and, um, you know, pushing things to beyond a certain limit. And I think that it's very clear when you study things like exercise, that more is not better, that there's a, there's an efficiency to certain kinds of exercise and intermittent exercise gives you way more benefits than, um, you know, jogging or, you know, heavy duty weight training and, you know, um, lifting the maximum weight and the fewest reps and things like that. And I think a lot of that is true of, uh, fasting that, um, there's, there's value to be had in, in periodic one-day fasts where you might, for example, skip breakfast and then you start skipping breakfast and lunch 
pick a day and say, okay, I'm only going to have two meals today and they're going to be in the afternoon and the evening. I'm going to eat them back to back and I'm going to have them be different composition and to go for 18 hours without eating any food. Um, there's value in that. But I don't think that the value that you can obtain from fasting can only be obtained from that method. And there might be advantages, for example, for doing two or three day fasting um, interspersed among the, uh, uh, this other kind of fasting and doing, you know, protein fasting at a different time than you do mm -hmm. carb fasting. Mm -hmm. And I do carb fasting a lot, mm -hmm. but I don't do protein fasting anywhere near that kind of frequency. So that kind of idea of mixing it up mm -hmm. and having it be irregular and unplanned is how it would happen to a real life human right. living in the, in, the, in the wild, wandering the earth. How often do you protein fast? Uh, it's not, I mean, I, I would say maybe, um, three times a year. Okay. And you do that for a 24 hour period or, or something longer? Um, most of the time, 24 hours, but, um, I've done it for three days at a time, um, periodically. So, um, I don't have, I don't know enough about this to say that I know what the best way is. So my solution in that situation is to bracket it. So if, you know, if, if two days was it, I'm doing one day and three days because I don't know any better. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and then, then I guess just for our listeners, if, if they haven't heard of protein fasting before, what benefit are you after when you do the protein fasting? Um, it's a, a autophagy mechanism of self-digestion of systems in the body. And so one starts to dig into one's lean body mass. Uh, one starts to lose muscle mass. One starts to lose um, uh, bone mass. One starts to lose enzymes throughout the body. One loses um, cellular garbage and debris, um, accumulated protein deposits and stuff like that. So it's 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 an auto digestion kind of process, and um, it turns out that when you do that for a very short period of time, the damage is easily reversible. It you know it just and, takes and a few a, days. There's a super compensatory compensatory effect, right? Like you, right. you would spring back bigger, better than than. Before. So your body, if you lose mitochondria, your body takes the ones that are good and duplicates them. If you, you replace your muscle mass, you replace your bone mass, but you don't replace your cellular garbage. So it's a way of cleaning out your house, taking everything out of your house or everything yep. out of your closet, yep. putting it in your room and then putting it back into the closet based on what you want. The stuff that's left over, you throw it away. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. It's almost like uh, culling the herd or thinning the herd and then building anew with the strong that survived. That's right. And I think this is um, part of our birthright. It's part of our uh, biological foundation that we have inherited that we are capable of doing these kinds of things, the going without protein for an extended period of time, for going without carbs for an extended period of time, um, for, for going without water for an extended period of time. So uh, I guess let's, let's circle back and, and on the topic of Parkinson's, you, know, you, you said that it's harder to reverse than Alzheimer's. But why is that? Well, um, the mechanism isn't as clean. Um, but the real issue is that in Alzheimer's disease, you start to accumulate neural damage um, when you develop your symptoms. Mm -hmm. 
So you could say that somebody in their first week of Alzheimer's disease um, really has no permanent brain damage to speak of. But when you have Parkinson's disease, by the time you notice symptoms, um, there's dramatic accumulation of damage. And so the issue with Alzheimer's disease is just to reverse the cause. With Parkinson's disease, it's to replace the damaged tissue, which means you're dealing with um, stem cell therapies or natural healing mechanisms and stuff that are very poorly understood in this day and age. We understand energy up, down, and sideways. Mm -hmm. You have an Alzheimer's patient with a low basal metabolic rate. You know all the different factors that are involved in restoring their metabolic rate. You know, you test their thyroid response. You test their adrenals. You test their um, mitochondria. You their response to CoQ10 to lipoic acid. You just go down the list. You know, one at a time at home. If you're taking care, if you're a grandkid taking care of your your grandparent. You could just do loading studies on somebody, and you don't even need a doctor to figure out most of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and but for Parkinson's disease, you've got this this pathology that's been running for five or fifteen or twenty five years that has caused progressive damage in the brain, and you just didn't know it was there. And the fact is that the pathology of Parkinson's disease in, involving the susceptibility of dopamine to free radicals. Uh, is taking place in all of us. It's part of our brain that's aging. The most, it's most, it's the most rapid aging part of our brain, and it's actually the guiding principle that causes our brain to develop in the fetus. As the cells are developing, there's a, a melanin synthesis pathway that guides the nervous system, that defines the differentiation of the rest of the of the of our bodies, um, that involves dopamine susceptibility to free radicals. That's what makes that part of the brain black. Well, that's happening in all of us. And the question is, do we get Parkinson's disease when we're 50, where you know, it's actually labeled, or do we get it when it's 150 and we've died before we've actually been diagnosed? So, I mean, what are some things that we can do to prevent that or guard against it? Um, you know, for, for those of us that don't have the symptoms or don't see the symptoms yet, but, but never want to. Well, I think there are lots of symptoms that are um, early manifestations of Parkinson's disease that are dismissed, that people don't cultivate. This is one of the beauties of being alive in this day and age is that computer technology and sensor technology are just going nuts. <laughs> yeah. So within 10 or 20 years, we're going to be wired to the max and we're yeah. going to have all this longitudinal data and you'll be able to look at things like how your handwriting, how handwriting is changing over time and, and, and sub- um, obvious tremors in your hand um, under different kinds of circumstances and um, you might even be able to figure out you know, the issue of whether or not your copper in your body is nutritionally available or is it being sequestered. Um, all kinds of things that would relate to that underlying stability of those dopamine neurons which are dependent upon the same redox system that is involved in the, in, as a collapse in Alzheimer's disease. Right. Well, so kind of a tangent off of that, you know, you talk about the future and we have all these toys and all this technology now and, and it's only going to increase, you know, what will be the impact uh, from, you know, all the, the radiation or the, the Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, all that stuff, you know, of, of being wired to the max? Well, 
it, this issue of fragile. I mean, the most fragile of us are susceptible to all those kinds of influences. Um, Dave Asprey is like the canary in the mine for mycotoxins. And I, I you know, thank, you know, the, the heavens that I don't have that kind of sensitivity. Right. But I do have um, constitutional weaknesses like my sinuses where that's my weak point. And if I'm going to be out in the world, that's the thing that's going to be talking to me the most mm -hmm. would be, you know, having a flare up in my sinuses and then it would, would descend down my throat and then into my lungs. And that's how I would catch a cold or a flu. I would notice it in that particular pattern and my lungs would resolve weeks before my sinuses would resolve. So that's part of being wise and part of being a biohacker is that you know your strengths and you know your weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And you learn these by, by practice, by challenges. So what happens when you take NADH, which is a core redox molecule transferring um, e redox equivalents or reducing equivalents from your, your, your mitochondria energy producing you know, systems to your glutathione pool, it goes from NADH to NADPH. So if you take NADH, you have an opportunity, opportunity to observe how does it affect me? Am I deficient in NADH? Mm -hmm. If I take NADH, does my strength go up? Does my stamina go up? Do I think more clearly? Do I sleep more soundly? So that gives you power to know what to do, what to spend your money on, mm -hmm. and also what not to waste your money on. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, you know, nobody has ever really said on our show the way you just said it. We, you know, we all have our individual strengths and weaknesses. Everybody's going to have their, you know, as you put it, that constitutional weakness, whether it's uh, gluten or um, mycotoxins or, or whatever. Um, and I'm also laughing as you talk about NADH. Every time somebody talks about that as, as a supplement or, or, or is taking it, I, I always think back to, uh, I was in uh, a biochem lab when I was in college, and I tried to take some uh, from our lab, and, and I told the, the TA, the instructor, I was like, you know, I, I would like to take some of this home with me and ingest it as a supplement. And he just looked at me like I was an alien. He was like, why would you want to do that? Like, and I'm like, and now, you know, you see it as a supplement. And, and it, so this goes back to that whole like biohacking before there was biohacking. Like that's just always been an interest of mine. Um, so I think it's really cool to, to hear you talk about in that way. Um, let, let me let me point out something about that too. So, you know, I I went through this transition when I was in my first year and two of college, when I went from being averse to experimentation to being enthusiastic about it, and I just caution anybody um, when you're dealing with this kind of an attitude, you have to you know, recognize this in yourself. So if you're somebody who thinks that taking supplements is the same thing as taking drugs, it's a sign of weakness and that you shouldn't be doing it, you need to um, play to that to be true to yourself or you need to focus, go see a therapist and try to find out where does that come from? Mm -hmm. So if you have a formative experience of seeing a grandparent die taking pills as a child, if you can go back to that experience and relive it and change those childhood perceptions of pills into an adult perception of, of pills and then spin it out differently, all of a sudden the fact that taking pills, the, the, the experience and noticing of taking pills moves from your danger drawer mm -hmm. into your safe drawer mm -hmm. and all of a sudden your life changes. So I strongly advise people to 
be true to themselves on that psychological, emotional, spiritual, intuitive level, um, and to um, to not to not um, I don't know fight themselves internally. That you want to be psychologically integrated between your mind and your emotions and your subconscious and your body. You want them all to be freely communicating with each other. You don't want to create glitches by saying, I know what's best for myself and have that subconscious go, no, you don't. <laughs> um, that's a very dangerous situation to be in. That's a really good point. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. Um, so uh, let's, let's do one more uh, topic here on, on this one. And, and for you guys listening, we're, we're going to talk to, to Steve. Uh, this is going to be part one. We're going to have part two coming um, in, a, in a separate uh, podcast. So uh, I know I want to hear more from Steve, and I'm sure you guys do too. So, so fear not, and that's why we're trying to kind of separate this into at least coherent part one and part two. Um, so, so I guess um, you know, let's talk about um, you know, we, we've talked at, at length about Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and that kind of stuff. Um, it, you know, you, you you've said before that that it's possible Alzheimer's disease, autism, and sudden infant death may all be similar. What do you mean by that, and how, how would they be related? Yeah, um, there's a, a, a redox involvement in all three um, mm -hmm. cases, and it's the same one. Okay. But it manifests in different ways because a newborn infant is very fragile and unstable, and so when their redox environment collapses, they just suddenly die. And, um, it, and it's not like we have an easy way of recognizing that in advance because our medical um, people don't measure that. Um, there was a book um, published in Australia um, years ago from a doctor, um, Archie Calacarinos, who had this really interesting observation in dealing with the um, Australian Aborigines who were put on government substance. So the, basically, the 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 white um, uh, leaders decided, okay, these people can't take care of themselves. We have to take care of themselves. And so, what did they give them? Well, um, biscuits and jam, <laughs> mm. <laughs> carb plus carb yep. plus carb. <laughs> you know, jam being two carbs. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and these these people were in horrible shape and. Their kids were all sick all the time and, and having respiratory infections and all kinds of stuff like that. And here was this doctor who was doing volunteer care to that community. And he noticed that they had a fairly high infant mortality rate. And then at one point he noticed that there was an unusual thing that the government would bring in their people and vaccinate their children. And that's when the children were dying. Um, so, you know, and it was 50% mortality, 50% infant mortality rate in wow. that community. And so he was in communication with Pauling and um, Cameron and Rath and other people in the States and knew about vitamin C and redox defense of using vitamin C. So he would go in after all these these children had been vaccinated when the people would say, oh, my child's suddenly very ill. He would go in and give them injections of vitamin C. And um, he only lost one baby in doing that. He took, wow. his, he took it from 50% infant mortality to zero 
infant mortality by giving them vitamin C injections. And uh, what that, you know, that, that always struck in my mind that, you know, how could something that's so, you know, simple as vitamin C do that? And the answer, of course, was the redox environment of the, of the infant, that it's very unstable. And when they get a vaccination, that vaccination has an antigen, which is inflammatory, and it has an adjuvant which is designed specifically to compromise the vitamin C, the glutathione, and the redox environment of the body so that it amplifies the antigen. So that's how the entire, the, the entire antigen presentation system works, is it's a, it's a measurement of the redox insult, um, and the deeper the redox insult, the greater the magnitude of the immune response, the antigen mm-hmm. antibody response, mm-hmm. the response to antibodies. And so um, that... You know, so when when the autism situation started blowing up in the United States, and I started consulting with uh, Bernie Rimland about a couple of issues, um, it, that same issue, I presented it and said, you know, this is this is a potential redox crisis, and he agreed, and all kinds of literature came out that that there's inflammation when there's inflammation in the gut, that that inflammation inflammation. Um, goes from the gut barrier to the blood-brain barrier and manifests in terms of an impairment of brain development and, and language skills and coping skills and all kinds of stuff, which we classify as autism, and that there's a redox basis for that transition. And despite what the government says, it is connected to vaccinations. It may not be immediately after vaccination, but there's some period of time in which the 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 insult of the vaccine adjuvants to the antioxidant defense system causes a malfunction in terms of antigen presentation and the immune system's response that then goes and affects the brain. But because children are more robust, they're less fragile than infants, they don't just die, Mm -hmm. they just suffer. And then when we go all the way to the elderly, this you don't even need the redox insult of the vaccine to do it because the browning out of their metabolism is 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 taking place over time and eventually it drops below this level of maintenance for the glutathione and then all of a sudden boom you have mercury being released from the glutathione that's poisoning this class of enzymes and boom your your body's your brain's um, uh, highway system, a super highway system gets disassembled and your brain's backup energy supply fails and your body's um, uh, cytoskeleton system, the the tightening and relaxing of your brain's um, skeleton freezes and gets stuck. Um, All of that happens, suddenly, boom, you have Alzheimer's disease. They all go back to this idea of a redox crisis. That's that's fascinating. I, I had no idea that there was such a similarity between all three of those. Um, they don't look similar, do no, they? No, no, no. <laughs> um, you know, so so for for our people listening, um, obviously we've all survived sudden infant uh, mortalities, um, <laughs> and and I'm going to assume that ninety nine point nine percent of our listeners are not autistic. So the one that we need as listeners to to be focusing on here is is avoiding Alzheimer's. Um, you know, so so my takeaways after part one of talking to you, uh, I, I will continue to make sure that I take vitamin C daily. I will continue to take glutathione and be cognizant of lifestyle practices and habits that may influence uh, glutathione. I'm going to 
keep exposing myself to negative ions. And I want to let's go back to that because I forgot to ask you about grounding. Is it the same concept there? You know, if we're uh, barefoot and, and in contact with the earth, that we can absorb those negative ions there. Yeah, it's it's part of our um, biological heritage that we're in contact with the earth. Mm-hmm. And um, we're in contact with the earth um, on a grounding level. We're in contact with the earth on a microbial level. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you as a parent protect your infant from eating dirt, um, you are actually damaging their gut microbiome. Yep. So all of these things that are parts of Mother Nature are foundational aspects of our health and our well-being. In other words, we didn't evolve in a blank environment. Right. We involved in an environment where we have microbial exposure, okay? So we learn to cultivate it. We involve in an environment where we have um, a magnetic field of the earth that is actually pulsing. It's a, it's a mobile field and it's pulsing. Well, what happens if we were to leave that field and go to Mars, which doesn't have a pulsing magnetic field, doesn't have a magnetic field, what would happen to us if we did that? Well, because nobody... nobody um, pays attention to what's always there. You know, it's like fish in water. What's water? <laughs> right. right. Um, we, don't, we don't consider that kind of thing, and yet that's the basis of our health. You know, fasting as a, 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 a lifestyle risk factor for being alive, um, and then all of a sudden not fasting <laughs> at all, we see all this diabetes. Well, you know, that's the, the consequence of ignoring that wild environment. So lighting, water, mm-hmm. ions, air, um, you know, all of this is part of our environment that we should be paying attention to, but we tend to take for granted. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that was going to be the, the, the last thing I put on that list was to intermittently challenge my body, not, not to allow myself physically or mentally to become comfortable, to, to throw things at ourselves, um, you know, to, to build on that anti-fragility and, and to challenge ourselves and, and, you know, call the herd, so to speak, and, and come back better for having done that. So um, I, I'm, I'm debating in my head how to wrap this one up. Um, so, so, Steve, we, well, with, with every guest, we always we give you an opportunity to tell our listeners where they can find more of you. So, so let's do that now. Um, tell our okay. listeners where they can get more uh, of you. Um, I'm all over the internet. If you type Stephen Fowkes into the internet, you're going to have a thousand hits. So, you know, that's an easy solution. Everybody knows how to do that. If you've, if you've you know, spent even a day on, the, on a computer, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Seri, uh, C-E-R-I dot com, is where all of the smart drug stuff that I've done is published. And not only is there an Alzheimer's disease menu and a Parkinson's disease menu and a... Um, uh, a, a Down syndrome menu um, on that site, but now all of the back issues um, are now online. Okay. You go to the back issues section, and there, all the PDFs are there. And so every um, page, it was you know seventy-two issues of information that most of which is still highly relevant to today. Um, all that information's there, and you can get lost in that for a while, but it's really excellent um, information. And then more modern stuff would be projectwellbeing.com. It would be some of my blogging is on Quora. Um, I've done podcasts with you and a bunch of other people. Um, I've been featured in a variety of documentaries on aging. I mean, it's just <laughs> there's a couple of Google Talks 
that I did that are online. Um, so there's not a problem finding information about. <laughs> I, I will do all of you listeners uh, a favor. I, I will try to consolidate, compile as much of that as possible and put those links on the Natural Stacks blog post for this episode. Um, we're going to come back with part two. And uh, in that episode, we're going to talk uh, about um, some of the things that we didn't get to on this one. We're going to talk about um, aerobic energy being the foundation for big brain, big brained beings. We're going to talk about polyunsaturated fats. We're going to talk about um, more about biometrics and medicine and wellness, some circadian hacks, metabolic exercise. We're going to have a lot more fun on that one too. So uh, before we let you go, Steve, just in case uh, people are hearing this one uh, before part two, let's go ahead and get your top three tips to live optimal. So if you could impart three pieces of wisdom and only three for our listeners, what would you want them to implement into their lives? I would say the, the first thing would be um, mental, that to recognize that despite any degree of ignorance that you have as a person in not knowing, for example, what a doctor knows or not knowing what I know or not knowing what any expert knows, that you are your own best expert because those core values of yours um, are yours and nobody else can know them like you do and nobody else can be true to them like you do. So you are your best doctor, you are your best counselor. Not that you ignore other people, but it always comes down to you being in charge of your life. I'd say that would be number one. Uh, number two would be um, the, the, the kind of general wisdom of trusting Mother Nature, of recognizing that you live in an artificial world and that you really don't want to live in an artificial world. So you want to cultivate and create an attachment to all of those things that are present in our environment that our bodies need to be supported. Water, negative ions, air, um, activity, movement, lymphatic flow, blood flow, um, just on and on and on. And number three would be that your brain is your early warning signal for things going wrong. And so the most energy you should put into monitoring yourself should be looking at higher cognitive functions. Those are beautiful. I love it. Steve, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a blast. Can't wait to talk to you for part two. Um, closing out part one uh, for you guys listening. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Um, please go to naturalstacks.com. You will be able to see the blog post with all of the links and resources that we've talked about. And go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review. Let us know how much you like the show and share the OPP with the people that you know will benefit from the things that we've talked about today. Thank you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next Thursday.